Well, good afternoon. Perspective is very important in life. Um, this year, some of you know, we went to France on holiday. We, went, we ended up in Paris. And uh, I'm not very good with heights, but uh, we went to the Arc de Triomphe. And this is what it looks like from the bottom. The Arc de Triomphe is 50 metres high. It's a massive structure. Um, but you can climb up some steps on the inside of the Arc de Triomphe and climb to the very top. If you look carefully, you might even see some people on the very top overlooking the railings. And when you're at the top of the Arc de Triomphe looking off, it, you get an amazing view over Paris. Perspective. It looks really big from down here, but when you stood on the top, it looks even bigger. The challenge for us, though, was that later in our holiday, we also went up the Eiffel Tower. And when you go up the Eiffel Tower, you look down on the Arc de Triomphe, and the Arc de Triomphe then seems absolutely tiny in the distance. When you stood at the bottom of it looking up, and then you're up the Eiffel Tower looking down, it's all about perspective, isn't it? Last Sunday, we started a new series in the, in the book of Ephesians. And one of the great things about Ephesians is Paul taking us up high, very high, and giving us a breathtaking, wide-angle view of what God is doing. The panoramic view that Paul shows us takes in not just Paris, or even the whole of Europe, or even the whole of our world. It takes in the whole universe. And more than that, it's not just a snapshot in time either, but Paul's panoramic view stretches right back before the universe was even created and stretches way forward until the end of this age and even stretches into an age that is yet still to come. It's an amazing perspective. Last week we were reflecting on the fact that many people's confidence is collapsing. We were thinking about the fact that there's a lot of confusion about what the Christian gospel actually is. And a lot of this depends on perspective. It all depends on where you're standing. When you look at things, doesn't it? And here in this letter, Paul is taking his readers very high in a sort of spiritual helicopter to see things from God's perspective. He writes so that they would enjoy the view. And that's the title for our thoughts this afternoon. Paul begins here in chapter 1 with what theologians would call a eulogy. Hear that word? He begins with a torrent of happy praise to God. It begins in verse 3 and it goes all the way down to verse 14. And this is one long uncomplicated uh, sentence. There are no full stops. This actually is one sentence in the original language from verse 3 down to verse 14. I don't know if Paul had to go and get another pen when he got to verse 15 because his first pen had melted. But he, he's writing and it's almost like a torrent. In our English translations of the Bible, the translators have very helpfully broken up this one long big sentence into shorter ones. Otherwise, when Denise read it, she would have like not been able to pause for breath. But one commentator says this, a price is paid for this ease of reading because we lose the experience of reading or hearing the passage as one long, unbroken, deliberately exhausting recitation of how God has blessed us. The sentence breaks in our English translation rob us of the experience of running out of breath as we praise God. What a great sentence that is. Can you imagine that? Running out of breath as you're praising God. That's Paul here. His pen's melting. Well, this afternoon, 
what I'd like us to do is just look at verse 3. Um, and the reason for that is that verse 3, if, you, if you're familiar with emails, verse 3 is the subject header. And verses 4 to 15 are the content. So when you get an email and it says at the top, re, you know, and this is what it's about. Verse 3 is the subject header. And I, I think verse 4 onwards unpicks, unpacks everything that Paul says in verse 3. Actually, it, it, it's even more than that. I think verse 3 is a good content for the whole letter. Actually, this verse is really crucial. The themes that Paul packs into verse 3, he elaborates on in the rest of the letter. I've, I've given you a handout today with some notes on. I'm not promising to do this every week. But you'll see there that there are four points I want to make on verse 3. And I hope as we go through them, you'll enjoy the view. Number one, Christianity always starts with God. Does that seem like an obvious thing to say? Paul here starts his letter by praising God for what God has done. I think Paul does that because it's always a good place to start. It is good for us to realise and remember when we forget that God is always the prime mover. He is the first and the prime mover in everything. And Paul says here, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. It is God who has blessed us. And there's a few things I want to say about that. The first thing is that this comes from God by revelation. I don't mean the book of Revelation. What I mean by that is that God himself reveals himself. There is some self-disclosure going on. And this is the great claim of Christianity, isn't it? People didn't make Christianity up. It wasn't some people who were reflecting on spiritual things and they thought, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if? No. Christianity starts with God and is totally dependent on God revealing himself to human beings. Paul says elsewhere in the book of Galatians and chapter 1 he writes to some Christians there and he says I want you to know brothers that the gospel I preached to you is not something that man made up I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ in fact all of the writers in the New Testament assume this one great fact that God has revealed himself to us in the end this is the reason why we can know him How, we, we live in such a relativistic age don't we where we're taught that we've got to look inside of ourselves and find truth and if it works for you it must be true but, th th but your truth is your truth and I'm going to find my truth in the end that is a cul-de-sac philosophically because not everyone's truth can be true truth the, the way out of that, if, if we're getting into that cul-de-sac, we need to go into reverse gear, do a three-point turn, and go straight back out of it. And what is the key that gets us out of that cul-de-sac? The fact, the great fact that God has spoken. And we're not at the mercy of our own subjective opinions. Secondly, it shows our complete dependence upon God. The, the first two chapters of Ephesians are really interesting. Um, chapter 1 is written from almost from God's perspective. In fact, does this microphone come off here? Will I, will I break it if I take it off? I will. Just pull it off. This way. This is chapter 1. Looking down. For those listening on the internet, I'm stood on a chair. This is chapter 2. Chapter 2. Just look at chapter 2, verse 1, while I lie here. And how does that start? Does it start with God? What does chapter 2 start with? I think we're in. 
chapter 1 is written from God's perspective. It's all about what God does. Chapter 2 is written much more from our perspective and what it looks like, what God is doing for us. So chapter 1 begins, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Chapter 2 begins, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What Paul's saying is, we, we, are, we are completely and utterly dependent upon God doing something for us that we could never ever do for ourselves. What Paul's saying here is that it isn't possible for us to climb up a religious ladder and find God. The truth is that God has come down the ladder and revealed himself to us. Everything starts with God doing something. It isn't us who initiate Christianity. This whole Christian faith isn't resting on our shoulders. It is all God's doing. Thirdly, under this first heading, this involves lavish generosity of purpose. For Paul here, This is not a matter of intellectual argument. It is that, but it isn't only that. For Paul, this is a matter of worship and praise. He isn't trying to win an argument here in this passage. He starts, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He isn't trying to win an argument. He's caught up in worship to God, isn't he? Lavish generosity. I remember Christmases as a child. Um, I have one younger brother, only a little bit younger than me, and uh, one Christmas, I remember my mum and dad spending the whole of December telling us that money was tight. Not going to get good presents this year. We didn't really believe them. But don't don't have high expectations this year. We really don't want you to be disappointed on Christmas morning. So we came down on Christmas morning and there were nice presents for sure, but it was obvious. Did you have this in your house? There was no main present. All the little presents were there, but there was no main present. And me and my brother looked at each other and said, well, you know, we thought they were kidding us for the whole of December, but money really must be tight. And we were dutifully very grateful for uh, all the little presents and the fact there was no main present. And then my dad stood up and he said, let's have breakfast then. And the house that we lived in had like a small lounge with a dining room behind. A little bit like um, Will and Emma's house, if you've been there. But it had a divider. It was like one of those old 1970s concertina affairs. You probably remember them. So my dad, he jumps up, let's have breakfast. He opens the sliding door. You're all on the edge of your seat now, aren't you? And in the dining room, rather than the breakfast table, was a six-foot slate bed snooker table set ready to play a frame. We nearly exploded with excitement. They'd been lying all the way through December. The surprise, the planning, the generosity and thoughtfulness our dad had gone to great lengths to keep this a secret. How would you hide a six-foot slate bed snooker table? Where on earth did he keep that? Was it under the stairs? And there it was. This is only a pale reflection of what God has done. Look at verse 5. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Not just his mechanical, logical, mathematical will. No, it was his very great delight and pleasure. This eight, if we're in any doubt, well, at the end of verse seven, we, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he what? Lavished. What a word for Paul to use. He lavished his generosity upon us. He drowned us in it. He switched the shower on and went, lavished his kindness. Even later, in verse 11, having been predestined, what? According to the plan of him who works on everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Here is a God who delights to plan to be generous. Do you get that? God's purposes in history are not the same as what secular people would call fate. Here is a God there is delight and pleasure and cheerfulness in God as he goes about his sovereign business in his world. This is like Christmas morning times by a million. Opening the sliding doors, it's not a six foot slate bed snooker table, it's the gospel, it's salvation. But if the generosity of God is breathtaking, so is the scope of what Paul Uh, It says here, so fourthly, this, it is incredible and eternal in its scope. We touched on it already. Verse 4, for God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. We'll get to that next time. We haven't got time to look at that verse today. Hopefully we'll cover off more of just verse 4 next week. He chose us in him before the creation of the world of the world and then look at verse 21 at the very end of verse 21 Paul speaks about not only in the present age but also in the one to come this gospel that begins with God he has blessed us in the heavenly realms of every spiritual blessing in Christ it is generous purposeful and the scope of it is eternal Christianity then starts with God Paul is saying here listen enjoy the view enjoy the view that leads nicely into our second point the word enjoy enjoy the view secondly the point of Christianity is always worship this is the end game we're always interested, aren't we, in the first words of new babies? What was your first word? Your children's first word? We're always interested in the first words of new babies. For a Christian believer, whatever the actual word is, I'm pretty sure, spiritually, it will involve some form or variation of the word thank you. For a genuine newborn Christian, the orientation of the heart is surely one of thank you, worship, praise. There's a play on words here in this verse. In our English translation, it's not so clear because the translators translate the word praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the original language, the same word appears three times. This is what it actually says in the original blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing in the Greek that's a play on words you you get the idea blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing Paul is being very effusive deliberate in his praise now we have to work really hard sometimes to explain Bible words and the word blessing is definitely a Bible word it's not about sneezing when we say bless you it's not about saying grace, bless the food. What does the word blessing mean? To be blessed is to be complete. To be blessed is in a sense to be truly happy. To be content and fulfilled. Jewish believers in the Old Testament would speak of God as the ever-blessed one. What a lovely description of God that is. The ever-blessed one. In other words, to them, God is the ultimate happy one. 
forever complete and secure and fulfilled in himself. But he is also, because of that, the source of everything that is good. He is blessed and he blesses others. And when others are blessed, what do they want to do but go back and bless their God? For Paul, the whole point of Christianity here is worship. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing. To me, this verse, you know I like to think in pictures, this verse fizzes. Uh, Yesterday I opened a bottle of Diet Coke that had been shook up. I didn't realise it had been shook up. It went everywhere. I opened the bottle. This verse is like that. Bless, 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 blessings. It fizzes. It fizzes. Uh, If you've ever been in a jacuzzi, don't put fairy liquid in it. That's what this verse is like. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heaven. It's like a jacuzzi with fairy liquid in it. Paul is not here just describing the view, is he? He's enjoying the view. It overflows. He's calling us and them to enjoy the view too. Notice again some of the phraseology. Um, He speaks in verse 6. Um, this is his why in love he predestined us to be adopted his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves to the praise of his glorious grace the whole point of this is that Christian believers would stand back and go oh God you're amazing it's there in verse 12 in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. It's there at the end of verse 14. He speaks about the Holy Spirit. He gets to the end. And if, if, if Paul was answering the question, why? His answer would be, to the praise of his glory. He begins with worship, he ends with worship. There's a sense in which Christianity both starts with God and it ends with God as well. It is all from him. It originates in him. It comes from him to us. But the end game is that every living sentient being who has eyes to see what God has done would be caught up in a crescendo of worship and praise to God. Now, some of you know that when, when I've spoken about worship here, the word that I tend to use or want to use is the word wow. Worship is really human beings standing back and looking at something and going, wow. That is the essence of worship. It seems to me that human beings are wired this way. We, we long, we deeply yearn to be satisfied by something ultimate, something bigger than us, something that we can look out at and go, wow, that's amazing. Even where people are not religious in a conventional sense, I think this holds true. It's not generally possible to be deeply satisfied by looking in the mirror. Might be for some people. Nobody gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror to go, wow, would you get a look at that? (laughs) And why why do people go to places like the Grand Canyon? You know, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and go, aren't I amazing? (laughs) They go to the Grand Canyon to look at the scenery and go, wow, that's the whole point, isn't it? We're not fulfilled by being self-obsessed we are most happy most free most fulfilled when we look out of ourselves and see things that make us go well so Christianity starts with God and it ends with God just stop for a minute with me and think about this because I think this is utterly opposite to the way our culture seems to want to work 
And what, what I mean by that is this. We are taught everywhere, and I mean everywhere, that human beings are the pinnacle of a random evolutionary process. We come from nothing and nowhere, and in the end, in the end, we're going nowhere. Our greatest achievement is that we survive and pass on our genes. Why that's a great achievement, I'm not sure. There's no real point to this. Life is what we make of it, and when you're dead, you're dead. Listen, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 is like a trumpet blast to wake us up out of that sort of pointlessness. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We haven't come from nowhere. We're not going nowhere. This begins with God and it ends with God. In Romans chapter 11, there's a great doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11 and Paul praises God saying these words, For from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be the glory. To him be the wow forever. Speaking about Christ himself in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that all things were created by him and for him. In other words, what Paul's saying is that our lives are from God and our lives are actually, in a very real sense, for God. I, I want to suggest to you this afternoon that the whole drama of human history is that we're really mixed up about whether we want this to be true or not. Isn't it? We want there to be more to life, but we don't want it to be God. Because if it's God... We're not the centre of things, are we? I really want there to be more to life. But I still want to be the centre. Even though the ever-blessed God is thoroughly good, we turn our backs on him because we want to be masters of our own destiny. But we find that we can't live as if there is no ultimate point to life. So what we do is we make non-ultimate things into ultimate things. Even the good things that this God gives us to enjoy, we turn them into ultimate things. But these substitute gods can't really fully satisfy the deepest yearnings of our hearts. So as human beings, we're always in a quandary. Yearning for what is ultimate, but not wanting that ultimate thing to be God. But this verse has even more for us. Because God, in his grace, has not left us to wallow in confusion. And neither has he abandoned us to our mixed up desires. So my third point is, Without Christ, there is no Christianity. Look again at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul, in this summary verse, praises God for the spiritual blessings that God bestows, but he adds that they're all in Christ. In other words, we might say that everything that God has blessed us with comes to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ, his Son. There is no Christianity without Jesus. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't possible to know him apart from his son, Jesus. If you take Christ out of these verses that Paul writes here, there'd be nothing left. 
Those who are chosen by God are chosen in Christ. Those who are adopted into God's family as sons are adopted, it tells us in verse 5, through Jesus Christ. The grace that he's given, freely given to us, how does he give it? He gives it to us in the one he loves, Jesus Christ. Those who are redeemed are redeemed through Christ and his death upon the cross. We are forgiven. How? Because of Jesus. God's purposes in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in who? In Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Christ is the point to the whole story. Everything that comes to us comes through him and in the end it will all redound to his glory. You can't take Christ out and have anything left. From God's perspective, shall I get up on the chair again? From God's perspective, looking down, Christ isn't one possible way of coming to God. He is the only and ultimate way of coming to God. Paul says it explicitly here that we've received spiritual no he doesn't say that we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ there are no other blessings to be had every good thing we can possibly know comes to us only in and through the Lord Jesus the way that Paul describes salvation is to say that believers are what? in Christ I love the fact that Paul says in verse 13 does this like make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you, you also were included in Christ you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth Christianity starts with God It leads always to worship of God and all of it, every part of it, without any exceptions, centres in on the Lord Jesus Christ. We all fall so far short and we need a hero. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul says, Enjoy the view. Enjoy the view. But before we finish, we've got a point four. I want to just apply some of this under this heading. Point four is Christianity is the display of God's power. Because Paul says something else in verse three. And maybe you're ahead of me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, you know now, Paul spent three years living and working in Ephesus. And in this letter, he uses the phrase heavenly realms five times and he doesn't use it anywhere else. So this is like a favourite buzz phrase for Paul that has very special importance for these Christians in this location why does he say that here in this summary verse that he then unpicks how is this relevant to the rest of the book where he uses this phrase again praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms I think Paul has at least three things in mind And they're all here in seed form. And as we go through Ephesians, God willing, hopefully we'll see these three themes coming out again and again. So watch out for them. First of all, Christianity is the display of God's power in dominating evil forces. In other words, the gospel is Christ, not superstition. Now, Ephesus was a very superstitious place. 
And for that reason, it's no accident that Paul uses this phrase in the heavenly realms here. My nana, she's no longer with us. I I loved my nana. My mum's mum. On that side of my family, uh, people weren't Christians. But but my my mum's family were lovely Lancashire people. The salt of the earth type people. Great sense of humour big hearts my, I used to love going to my nana's house and she, but I remember as a child she, she used to love talking about the bogeyman she scared the living daylights out of me as a child I, I actually looked up bogeyman on wikipedia this week and it reminded my man, my, of my nana because it says the bogeyman is a common allusion to a mythical creature in many cultures used by adults or older children to frighten bad children into good behaviour. That was my nana. I can't control these little blighters. The bogeyman's going to come and get you. It was either bribery or the bogeyman. What is hiding under my bed? Oh, my nana, what damage she did. Under the stairs, around the corner. The idea that it, it lives somewhere in our subconscious that there is more to life than what we see. Is there something I don't know that's really, really important? Sometimes, I don't know, sometimes people grow up thinking this, don't they? That everyone's in on the game, but I'm not. Does anyone actually know the future? Am I going to be safe tomorrow, next week? Scientific rationalists frame life as a choice between foolish superstition or nothing. And they very conveniently put Christianity in the foolish superstition bit as if it was on a par with Winnie the Pooh or some other fairy tale. Paul does not see life that way. He is very clear about the existence of a spiritual realm. There is a world beyond this phrase I think heavenly realms is Paul's way of talking about something that deep down we all know to be true another writer says the heavenly realms here stand for man's invisible spiritual environment as contrasted with the visible tangible environment we call earth it is the realm of all the unseen force good and evil which struggle to dominate the life of man through his politics, his religion his social ideals Paul is very clear here that these heavenly realms and the powers of evil that operate within them are very firmly in God's own pocket can I say it like that? He praises God that the world beyond, the spiritual world that we can't see with our physical eyes, is not something to be frightened by. It is dominated and controlled by God, not some unknown bogeyman. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where? In the heavenly realms. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. These Ephesians had been captivated by supernatural powers. We haven't got time. You can read in Acts chapter 19 that on one occasion, in response to Paul's own ministry, people brought all their witchcraft and sorcery books, they made a massive bonfire, and they set the whole lot on fire. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that the total value of all the books they burnt that day was 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a day's wages. Me and Ian in the office this week worked out that's the best part of five million quid. Five million quid's worth of sorcery books. These were superstitious people. When they met Christ, they chucked it all on a bonfire and said, we don't want that anymore. Christ is who we want. The idea here is of a titanic struggle between good and evil in the invisible spiritual world. But it is a battle, Paul says, in which Christ is utterly dominant and triumphant. Just look with me 
at verse uh, 20. We'll get to this one day in a couple of years' time. Um, Paul speaking about God's power at the end of verse 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand where? In the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. What is Paul saying to them? He's saying, you've got nothing to be frightened of. There is no bogeyman hiding under your bed. Christ has been exalted to the highest place and you've been blessed in him in those heavenly realms. There is a great struggle going on, but there is nothing that can ultimately, ultimately deprive them of God's grace or separate them from Christ. They're caught up in a great fight, but they're safe if they're in Christ. There's no need for them to be superstitious anymore. They don't need to consult horoscopes, Ouija boards, fortune tellers. They don't need to be frightened of some unknown bogeyman. God has them covered. He has blessed them in the heavenly realms with everything they need in Christ. This is a gospel of genuine spiritual power. So, as we go through this letter, keep your eyes open for this idea that Christ is dominant over the heavenly realms. We need to be quick, so let me just say two other things. Secondly, this is a display of God's power in securing salvation. In other words, this is Christ, not religion. The second thing Paul implies here with his use of this phrase, heavenly realms, is something about their status. It is interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't say, God has blessed you in Ephesus. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed you in Rotherham. In Christ. He doesn't say that, does he? The God and Father of Jesus has blessed them. Where is the location of that blessing? It is in the heavenly realms. Let me take you briefly to chapter 2 and verse 6. We've seen that Christ has been raised up and exalted far above every power and authority. Look at what Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 2. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He, he it seems to me, is speaking there in the past tense. He doesn't say, and God one day will raise us up with Christ and seat us then with Christ in the heavenly realms. He's speaking to these people in Ephesus as though this is something that has already happened to them. He's speaking here about something that theologically, theoretically, is true for them now. It is not something that we're waiting for in the future. It is in one sense, but it confirms our present status now. One writer says this, when somebody asks me, are you going to heaven someday? The answer generally given is, well, I hope so. Let me say this to you. If you're going to heaven, you're already there in Christ. He has blessed you in the heavenly realms. And you are there regardless of your position down here. This is the deal. For Paul, Christianity is about being united with Jesus. So that where Christ is, that is really spiritually where we are. If he is seated in the heavenly realms and you are united to him, while he is king, you are safe. He is, if you like, your representative head. Oh, I need to be quick here. In the Old Testament, there was a battle between, a very famous battle between a very big guy and a little young guy, David and Goliath. 
Do you remember that story? 1 Samuel. You can read about it. Goliath was a Philistine and every day he came out to mock God's people. He was like nine feet tall. Scared the living daylights out of the Israelites. He was the Philistine champion. And what Goliath said as he boomed his voice over the valley was, listen guys, instead of us all fighting and there being loads of bloodshed, just send your champion to fight me. We'll have one fight. Like WWF. We'll have one fight. Me against your best champion. And whoever wins, they'll be the masters. And whoever loses, they'll be the slaves. All the Israelites are in their tents with their knees knocking together, their teeth chattering, thinking, there's nobody, nobody. Who's going to go? David comes as a young boy and says, how dare he mock God's people? I'll go. And amazingly, with God's help, he takes up the call. As he walks out, glass like, I'm going to snap your legs like a twig, mate. <laughs> David said, yeah, watch this. Straight in the middle of the forehead, he drops down. David could barely pick up Goliath's sword. Chops off his head and carries the head to King Saul. They must have been giddy. All of those frightened Israelites. David was their champion. He won for them. They won because of him. Do you get that? That is the gospel. It isn't religion. Christ is our champion. He fights for us. He wins for us. He destroys the powers of darkness for us. And he rises to sit in the heavenly realms far above. He is our king, our representative head, and we are joined to him. Do you realise that Christianity is therefore much more than just being a good idea? It's not just agreeing with what the Bible says or believing something in your head mentally. It isn't about being religious. Christianity is a completely radical change. It is being moved out of one environment into a different environment. Christianity is nothing less than being placed spiritually in Christ in the heavenly realms as we go through we'll talk about this more Christianity is a radically new and different life new status, new values new outlook, new destiny we've said this so many times haven't we, Christianity is not about doing good works to earn salvation it is about doing good works because God has given us salvation. Very different thing. So, as we go through this letter, look out too for how Paul talks about ethics and behaviour. Paul is always saying, live like this because this is now who you are in Christ. He doesn't say live like this so you'll be in Christ. He says, live like this because you are in Christ. Massive difference. Last point is Christianity is the display of God's power in uniting Christian believers. This is, if you like, Christ, not individualism. This is really important in Ephesians. Christian believers are not in competition with one another, they're all one in Christ. And as we go through this letter, we'll see how. Christ unites people who are very different into one true community. There's no place for superiority or pride because we're joined together in Christ. I just want to touch on this just for a moment and then we're done. One of the things that's very often true about cults, you know what a cult is, one of the things that's very often true of cults is the idea of secrets. You know, the path to true fulfilment is open to you, but I have the secret. And to know it, you have to follow me, and, if, and I'll let you into my secret. And then we can all know it together. That is a way 
of exerting power, control. It creates an atmosphere of superiority that is deeply divisive and it separates people who are in the know from people who are not in the know. Paul says, just look with me, verse 9, and God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ Paul says you know it is all in the open there is no secret Christ dominates the unseen spiritual realm he is king everywhere there are no surprises there are no secrets to be initiated into evil powers are destructive divisive deceptive and secretive Christ is always joining things together building things up being transparent and open Paul is saying to them there's no bogeyman there's no secret There's no superiority. Christ is all. And you know what? You can have all of him. All of you can have all of him. Listen to this verse 3 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Us. In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, as we go through this letter... Look out to for Paul's emphasis on unity. Paul's point is, my point is, there are no second class Christians. None. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. There's no pecking order. If you are trusting Christ, you're secure in Him, and you are all one in him and you all along with your brothers and sisters have access to the same father by his spirit through Jesus Christ so verse 3 here sets the tone for the whole book what is Christianity about well God started it Christ delivered it we can participate in it blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing Paul here is urging you to come and enjoy the view and I can tell you you won't find a better one anywhere